Okay, we're starting with Matthew 9 today. Let's review last week. Here for a little bit. Was Jesus a rich man? No. No? Okay. How do we know that? What's that? Nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a home to call his own. He walked. He walked everywhere. That's good. Well, there was one place he didn't walk. Which place was that? Okay. Um, what was he riding on? Donkey. And what was he doing? Going to Jerusalem. That's right. Going to Jerusalem. So, most kings don't ride on donkeys, though, do they? No. So, he was a humble king. And, um, so we saw last week that, according to contrary with the false teachers of our day, the prosperity gospel teachers of our day say he had nowhere to lay his head. He wasn't rich. Um, we looked at this story of the two demon-possessed men who were healed, and we harmonized it with the Luke account, which is very similar to the Mark account. And we saw some differences there, but the, does the Bible contradict itself in that account at all? Any contradictions there? No? Just a clarification, a more detailed account in some cases than others. So how many men were there total there who were demon-possessed? There were two, that's right. That's right. And we don't know if the second one had the demons drive, drove, driven out of him or not, but we do know at least one had demons driven out of him. And that one did most of the talking. And we do know that. All right, then we looked at the uh, at why the different versions of the Bible, which have a different manuscript family behind them, because we know the Bible is originally written in what language in the Old Testament? Hebrew. Hebrew. And what language in the New Testament? Greek. Okay. So there's a Hebrew and a Greek manuscript. For Old Testament is Hebrew, New Testament is Greek. And the versions of the Bible, the NIV, the NASB, the ESV, you may not know what those initials stand for, but know that they're all based on this one manuscript family of the Hebrew and Greek. Whereas the King James and New King James are based on a different manuscript family. Okay? Uh, and we saw one reason why the manuscript family behind the other versions besides the King James and New King James must be corrupted. What was that one thing that we saw that proved that? Where the pigs were um, driven to see the city. Right. What, what's, what city did the, did the other Bibles say the pigs were in? Gadarenes is what the New King James and the King James say. Gadarenes and Gergesenes uh, is what the King James and New King James say. Which we saw, looked at the map on the back of your Bible, we saw they're not very far apart. They're both right on, basically almost right on the Sea of Galilee. And But there's another city that was farther away. Gerasa. Gerasa, that's right. Gerasa was over 30 miles away. So we see that there has there's a problem there because the pigs didn't run 30-something miles into the sea. Okay? You can't see 30-something miles. No one has that kind of a vision. So uh, they were right near the sea, and you can see throughout the story that the whole activity that was going on with these two demon-possessed men was happening right near the sea. Because as soon as they said, they tried to say, get out of our region, the people who had the pigs, they get out of our region, what did they do? They got back into their boats. They didn't get back into their boats, you know, a couple days later, 30-something miles later, they got back in their boats almost immediately. So they're near the sea. So we can see why that those those manuscripts are corrupt. Now, what was the kind of humorous thing about Jesus sending the demons out into the pigs? Remember that part? Um, did he go to his, um, 
what's the humorous thing about the pigs? Should, should Jews be raising pigs? Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of humorous because they, the Jews shouldn't be raising those pigs anyway. There's 2,000 of them. One just like one or two here and there. I'm going to sneak some bacon. I know I'm going to break the, break the, you know, the dietary laws. It was 2,000 pigs. That's big time sin in Jewish, in Jewish uh, nation. So uh, they rightly deserved their 2,000 pigs being drive, driven into the city. That was sin. And did they receive the, that kind of rebuke from Jesus, or did they? What did they do? To, what did they tell him? They said, "Get out of here. We don't want. We don't want you right here." They didn't say, "Oh Lord, we come before you and get on our knees," and they repented of their pig raising and say, "Teach us more." Thank you for saving these demon possessed men because they're more valuable than pigs, which is sin for us in the first place. They said, "No, get out of this place. We don't want you here." So it kind of show you what their their sinful hearts by the response to the preaching of the gospel or the response to the asking Jesus to do much preaching there, but the response to what happened, the miracles Jesus did. They didn't want to hear anything else. Even though it was obvious that Jesus was from God. Just by what he did. Because according to the accounts we read, people couldn't even pass by that way, let alone heal these men. It was so dangerous. Okay, let's go into Matthew 9 today. And we're going to read through verse 13. So he, Jesus, got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But they may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. And when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at a table in the house, that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Okay, we're going to do a little bit of more harmonizing today. We're going to go right to the Mark account and then right to the Luke account. And I want you to pay attention as we're reading through these accounts to see if you can see any details that are added there. Are any differences? So let's go to Mark uh, chapter 2 and verses 3. I don't see where does it end. Mark 2 starts with verse 3 and it ends in verse 17. Okay, actually, let's start in verse 1. Mark 2, 1 through 17. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately they gathered together so that there was no, no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit, they reasoned thus within themselves, 
said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the person who sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? They may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went into the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and, taught, and he taught them. And he passed by, and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to them, Follow me. So he rose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I do not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Alright, Luke chapter 5. And this is a good practice to undertake, because when you defend your faith with lost sinners, they're going to bring up these things, and you have to be able to defend yourself. Okay, so it's a good thing to practice. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17, going through verse 32. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought a bed, on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. When they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling in the mist before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who, thinks, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise up and walk? But he may know that the Son of Man has power enough to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. After these things, he went on and saw a tax collector named Levi, sitting in the tax office. He said to him, Follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tacklers and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, let's go back to the Matthew account here. And I want you to tell me some things you saw that were different. Just raise your hand if you saw something. Hannah? doesn't mention that it's Levi's house. And who, who is Levi? Yes, sir? Matthew. That's right. Same exact person. So we see here in Matthew's account of this that he's kind of being humble. Humble about the situation. He's not mentioning it's his house. 
He's not. T he's not. Doesn't want to kind of bring out the open and say, "Look what I did. I gave." And and what does what does Luke call this thing at his house? Feast. A great feast. So Matthew's being very humble when he's recounting the story of what happened at his house. He didn't say it was his house, and he didn't call it a great feast. And he calls himself Matthew. And Levi is a more noble name. It's a Hebrew name. It's a more noble name. It's a it's a it's a better name. But Mark and Luke both call him Levi. So we see Matthew's humility, and that, that's one thing we can ask ourselves. When we have an opportunity to say something good about ourselves, do we tell all the details we possibly can to make ourselves look as good as we possibly can? Or do we take the humble approach to it and just tell as little information as possible? Of course, now we don't want to have a false humility, and that's the other extreme. People go too far, and they're actually putting themselves down all the time. And that's really uh, prideful in itself, because they're putting themselves down to get people to look at them and say, look how humble I am. You know, that's a false humility. So we don't want to have that either. But at the same time, when we do something good, what does the Bible say about that? Let your right hand not know what your left hand is doing. Matthew's practicing that right now. So when others are talking about what he did, they're giving the full details but when he talks about what he did, he's not, he's not giving the details that give him praise. Because he wants praise from God and not from men. This is what we should want as well. So when it comes to recounting something, uh, it's not about, you know, maybe you want to leave parts out that's going to make you look, doesn't make you uh, what you're saying into a lie, of course. Uh, but you don't have to give all the, all the, every single little detail of what you did. Because that's going to give you, give room for people to give glory to you. And if you're doing wonderful things for God, there's going to be a temptation for that. There's going to be a temptation for other people to give you praise. And, you know, so I think that the, probably the biblical approach when people are giving you praise or trying to uh, say something good you did is just to accept it, tell them thank you, and just to move on. Not to dwell on it, not to talk about it anymore, but just to, to go on. I mean, it's, it's okay to accept encouragement from people, to accept uh, praise from people in that sense. I don't mean praise like you give God, but when people say something good about it, it's okay to say that, accept that. It's okay for people to say that about you. Uh, but you want to accept it in a humble way, uh, but always try to you know, redirect them back to God's glory. Okay, uh, But there's also going to be a false humility in the way we respond to it. It can be, well... You know, oh, no big deal, you know, no thing. You don't, I mean, I don't think, I don't necessarily think that's a humble response. You just accept what people are trying to give to you, the, the encouragement they're trying to give to you, accept it, and move on. That's probably the best way to do it. But we can learn from Matthew's example here. Okay. Uh, what else did you, did you see? Details, Hannah? Um, it says that we have seen strange things today and that Mark doesn't say that. Yeah, the Matthew and Mark use different... Adjectives, they said uh, wonderful things we've seen, marveled at it. Uh, we have not seen these kind of things from anyone else. So they're all using synonyms there, but they're saying different things. Now, exactly, and, and there's a huge crowd there, so maybe one person heard, one person saw a marvel, one person heard this thing that someone said. So there's different things you can hear from different people. There's a huge crowd there. So, but, there, but it's all the same kind of response from the crowd. Is there anything else you saw that was... Uh, Difference in different accounts. Any kind of details ever added? Okay, well, there are more, but we'll, as we go through it, I'll, I'll kind of point them out to you. Okay, so Jesus got into the boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Well, the other, the other accounts 
show us what his own city is. Now, this is the city that he was born in, not Bethlehem, not Nazareth. What happened in Nazareth? They went back to Nazareth. You don't want nothing to do with them. They want to throw them off a cliff. Remember? The prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So they want to throw them off a cliff. They want nothing to do with them. He said, not many miracles can be done there. Why? Because they're a lack of faith. So, so now he's, he's changing his, his home base, I guess you could say. His home base is not Nazareth, where he lived all his life. His home base is not Bethlehem, where he was born. His home base is Capernaum. And I'm going to assert to you, I think his home base is Peter's house. He's constantly going back to Peter's house. In fact, if we go back in Matthew 8 a little bit, we'll see that he healed Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew 8, 14. And he was in his house, and that's where they came. And that's where he is again. You see, the Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, they're real open to what he's doing. People are getting healed left and right because they have faith. People are hearing the word of God preached. And that's, in fact, that's the first thing that the Luke account says about it, is that they, that, uh, or is it Mark? One of them says right off the bat, the first thing it says when he's back in that town, Mark chapter 2, verse 2, immediately many gathered together so that, that there was no longer room to receive them. So all these people, they, they want, they're hungry for it, and he preached the word to them. That's the first thing he did. You know, there's a movement going around in Christianity. There's this idea that if you're going to preach to somebody, you have to meet their physical needs first. That's the idea people have. But we see in this account of Jesus, he preached to them first. And then he healed some people. But he preached to them first. And nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to meet someone's physical needs first, or you have to heal someone first, before you have the right to preach to them. You're going to go all the world and preach the gospel. Let's say go to all the world and meet people's needs. Now, meeting people's needs is okay. Sometimes they'll give more power behind your message because you're doing something tangible for them as well. But you have no necessity, unless God lays it upon you individually in certain situations, you have no necessity to meet someone's need in order to preach to them. No necessity at all. And Jesus gives an example. And there are times that Jesus might have met their physical need first. No problem. We must be led by the Spirit in these situations. But there's no necessity. Some people try to lay upon Christians that if you're going to preach the Word, you must meet the, meet the physical need first. And some of these people are saying you must, must meet their felt needs first. With all these easy believism groups like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels and stuff like that. Okay, So don't fall into that thinking. So the first thing he did was preach. He's in Capernaum. It's called his own city here. So it's like his home base for his ministry. If you look at the, you know, the back maps of your, of your Bible, you'll see he's always going back and forth to Capernaum. If, if, you're, if your Bible maps in the back show the route that Jesus took during his ministry, you see he's always coming back and forth to Capernaum all throughout his ministry. And I mean, if I, if, if I was at a certain place where people were receiving the word, uh, they were hearing it, they were growing, I'd probably spend a lot more time there too. People were getting healed because they had faith to be healed. Yeah, so he's going, always going back to Capernaum. Then behold, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Who brought him a paralytic lying on a bed? Four men. Four men. That's what it says, right? Four men. That's what, that's what Luke says here. Let's, let's just check it real sure, real quick to make sure I'm right on that. Let's see. Ah, Mark 2, 3. And they came to him, bringing a paralytic. He was carried by four men. So four men came. And uh, this is not like a, we picture a bed, we picture a mattress. This is probably more like a uh, stretcher. Kind of like a gurney. 
military term for it, I guess. Uh, yeah, stretcher where they have a pole off each side, so there's four people can carry it. And the man's in the middle, it's kind of like a strong piece of fabric with two poles going off the side. And I don't know exactly what it looked like then. And uh, I've seen, I actually watched a little bit of the Gospel according to Matthew today, that little visual Bible thing, and they, they kind of pictured this thing that you couldn't have carried someone on. It wasn't strong enough. Kind of like something you might see for blinds. You know, one of those things. It's not, I don't think that's what it was. So Now this word used for bed here is used for actual bed in the Bible too. But it's not, they're not carrying around a mattress. Okay, They're carrying around probably some kind of structure. Now how, how did they get him in there? Because according to the accounts we read, it's been so packed in, you can't even outside the house, you can't get close to the house. So how did they get him in? To the roof. To the roof. And, and what kind of roof was it? Tile. Tile roof. Okay, let me kind of give you a picture. Once the picture is ahead, okay, you got a roof like this, okay? And all along the side of the roof, there's these tiles in an S shape. So you got a little kind of little lip there, and it goes down like this, and then another little lip right there, and that's how they're kind of interlocking together, okay? All down the roof. And that's how water's kind of pouring down. That's the kind of roof they had. Now, these tiles, these S shaped tiles, that the archaeologists find from that period of time, they weigh about 60 pounds each per tile. These are heavy tiles. Heavy duty things. So these men are these men really love their brother, first of all. And they really have faith that Jesus can and will do something about it. So they're removing these tiles piece by piece. You know, moving them out of the way. And they lower their friend down. And what what's the first thing Jesus says? I see your faith. They're moving they're willing to move all the obstacles out of the way to do what they know. To get their friend to this man named Jesus, who he knows can heal them. Can heal him. And uh, so, one thing I think we can get from this is uh, how, what lengths are we willing to go to to get obstacles out of the way to bring our friends to Jesus? Not just for physical healing now, which is important too, for spiritual healing. You know, who's that person he'd been praying for for so long? Who's not saved? Maybe they came to the brink a couple times. Have you fasted and prayed for them? Or just prayed for them? Or maybe you kind of used to pray for them real fervently, but you've kind of laxed off a little bit on them. Now, who's that person? Well, how far are you willing to go? You know, or, or maybe that person who needs to be healed, how far are you willing to go for that person? So we can question and examine ourselves. How far are we willing to go? You know, some people, they have a problem just getting over the fears and handing someone a gospel track. Maybe that's your thing. But how far are you willing to go to bring that person to Jesus? These men are willing to take these 60, go on top of the roof, take these 60-pound tiles out of the way to get their friend, and who knows how long that took, to get their friend to Jesus. And what's the first thing that Jesus said to this paralytic? You take care of the physical needs first or the spiritual needs first? He says, son, your, your sins are forgiven you. Now, he, he didn't just go around forgiving everyone's sins because he, he wanted to. What did he see in this man that was the foundation, the grounds, for him being able to forgive the man? He saw his faith. You must have faith in Jesus to have your sins forgiven. And he said, and, and the only account that says this is, is the account in Matthew, says, be of good cheer. So maybe he was downcast in some way. Maybe he had godly sorrow. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, and then repentance leads to joy. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit. 
I can still remember that day. I don't remember the, I don't know what the exact day was, but I can remember that day that I got saved. I said, joy in my heart. Best night of sleep I ever had in my life. This burden of sin had been taken off my back. But before that, I had godly sorrow for quite some time. But I can, I can hear God saying to me, almost the same way, he said, be of, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. We have good reason to be of good cheer when our sins are forgiven of us. When God doesn't hold them against us any longer. If that's just a one-time thing in the past, we should have continually. Whether, we're, whether we've sinned today or not, we should have continual cheer and joy in our heart. God, you forgive me of my sins. You gave me what I don't deserve. So he's forgiven of his sins. And then the scribes thought within themselves, thought in their hearts, reason in their hearts, it says. Now who, who but God can know someone's thoughts? Unless God revealed it to them, of course, but he knew their thoughts. The fact that he knew their thoughts would have told them something. You're thinking something in your heart, and Jesus says, don't think that. Huh? How did you know my thoughts? You know, and, and, and they're reasoning, they're reasoning rightly here, because it says in one of the accounts, Luke and Mark, who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right about that. But they're wrong about who Jesus is. They reason rightly, who can forgive sins but God alone? But then Jesus speaks up, knows their thoughts, which only God can do. And then he says, well, so you can realize the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins. I'll do this as well. Raise and take your mouth and walk away. And then he did it. That should prove something to them. That this is God incarnate. This is Jesus, the Son of God, and God, the Son of the flesh. But, but look at what he calls himself here. What does he call himself? Jesus. The Son of Man. So he gives himself, and this is a word that's used about, it's really only used mostly in the New Testament. It's a couple times in the, Old, in the Old Testament. We'll get to here in a second. But 86 times, according to my count, in the New Testament, counted it myself, and about 30 times in Matthew. Um, most of it's in the Gospels. I think there's a couple times in Revelation. And then one time in, in uh, Hebrews, which is quoting from Psalm 8. Uh, and I think it's one time in Acts as well. But mostly it's in, it's in the, the Gospels. And it's mostly in Matthew when it comes to the Gospels, over 30 times. This Son of Man is, was first used about Jesus in Daniel chapter 7. Let's go there. Daniel chapter 7. And it's in verse 13 and 14. When we see in Daniel 7, we see the vision of the four beasts. And uh, most of this vision, from Daniel's perspective, is a future vision. And the four beasts are the four kingdoms. And um, according to my notes in our study of in Pastor Tim Warner's Revelation study, I have some notes in my Bible concerning this. Uh, the first kingdom, which is found in verse 4 of Daniel 7, is Babylon. The second kingdom is Persia. The third kingdom is the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the Greek kingdom. And the fourth kingdom is the kingdom that's yet to come, the kingdom of the Antichrist. And then we see in verse, I'm going to read in verse 9 here, it says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Now who's the Ancient of Days? God, that's right. He was seated. His garment was white as snow, 
The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery, fiery flame. It wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands. What's a thousand times a thousand? One million. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand. What's that? That's a hundred million. Ten thousand times ten thousand. Stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I watched them because of the sound of the pompous word which the horn was speaking. The horn is the Antichrist. The pompous words he's speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season at a time. I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Who's that? That's Jesus. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Then all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So we have this, this son of man. And who does he come to? Ancient of Days. But tell me they're two different people. This is good doctrine for, this is good verses for the Trinity right here. And so does the verse that we just read. Because Jesus, his deity, only he has the power to forgive sins. Only he has the power to look into someone's thoughts as a man on earth. But then we see he's re he referencing himself to the Son of Man. And this is the second time we see it in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. We saw it in Matthew 8, 22, where he said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Second time in Matthew, he said he called himself the Son of Man. He's referencing back to this. He is the one who will have the everlasting kingdom. So, you know, he's doing everything he can to reveal to these people that he is the Messiah. That he is the one they've been waiting for. He is the one who will have the everlasting kingdom. He is the one who will get that kingdom from the ancient of days. Who will put everything under his feet according to Hebrews, except for the one who put the things under his feet. So he's the son of man. The son of man is a very humble title for himself. He couldn't call himself the son of God. He calls himself the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Son of Man is referencing to his, his humanity because Jesus is 100% God, but he had 100% man as well. It's a humble title to give himself. So Jesus is the one. He's, he's trying to tell them. Sometimes they just don't get it. I mean, these scribes and Pharisees, he did everything he was willing to do, of course, within his power to show them, look, I just, I just read your thoughts. I come to the Son of Man, which I'm the one who's going to have an everlasting kingdom. And not only that, I'm trying to tell you, by healing this man, by forgiving his sins, I am God in the flesh. So these are some good scriptures here to back up the doctrine of the Trinity and to back up the deity of Christ. Alright, let's read on to the uh, account here of Matthew, text like Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. You know his name is Levi as well. You know what happened? As Jesus sat at the table in the house, doesn't say what house once again, it's Matthew's house, Levi's house, a great banquet, a great feast, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So what's the first thing Matthew does 
He decides to follow Jesus. Kind of like a coming out party, I guess you can say. He said, look, this is the man I'm going to follow for now. And he invites all his tax collector friends and all his sinner friends, people he used to hang out with, to come meet Jesus. And that's the first thing we should be doing as we become Christians and we have sinful friends. Hey, I met Jesus. I'm following him. Come meet him too. Come sit at this feast with him and learn from him. Because he comes for sinners. You know what you are now? I used to be that way. And that's exactly what Jesus says. When the, when the Pharisees, I mean, they, they, just, I don't, they just don't get it. They, they think that, that God is only for righteous people. They, and two things here. First of all, they don't understand that they've been sinners. And they still are sinners. In fact, they're children of the devil, according to Jesus. Most of them. And secondly, they're not realizing where they've come from, what they, where they still are, but what God is out for. And God is out for the worst of worst sinners. Because the worst of worst, who've been forgiven the most, will love the most, and they'll be used by God in mighty ways. Imagine if someone like I don't know, Bill Gates became a Christian. A genuine, real Christian. Imagine if someone like Michael Jackson before he died became a real, genuine Christian. Or some of these movie stars. I mean, one lady the children won't know about, Lady Gaga, I don't really know much about her, just what I've studied about her. That, I mean, all the influence and power she has among people. Imagine if she became a Christian. So God's out for the worst of worst, and in their society, as we remember studying at the beginning of Matthew, the introduction to it, who are considered the worst sinners in their society? The tax collectors. Why? Do you remember what, why they were considered the worst? What, what are they doing? They're basically stealing, that's right. They ran about kind of way. They're collecting taxes for who? The Romans. And the Jews couldn't stand the Romans because they wanted to have their own authority in their own country. They wanted no one over top of them. And here we have these Jewish people aligning basically with the Romans by collecting taxes for them. They're considered traitors in their own country. Traitors. The worst of the worst. In the Jewish people's eyes as a whole. And Jesus says, and this is kind of an ironic thing when you consider Calvinism from verse 12. Once you, Kevin and John, think about this a second. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. What's that last word there? Sick. The ironic thing is when you bring up the word dead with Calvinists, they'll say, they're not sick, they're dead. They can't do anything. You know, that's one of their arguments behind this word dead, that they, they have no free will, they can't have no power to choose. But yet, they'll say he's not sick, but Jesus calls him sick. You know, so, they, they can't say that. Obviously, we have to understand what dead means. It means spiritually separated from God. It doesn't mean you can't choose. You're choosing sin. You can choose to stop sinning as well. You can choose to trust in Christ and have faith in Him. So just as dead in sin does not mean you can't choose righteousness or faith in Christ, the same way dead to sin does not mean you can't choose to sin. Just like being a slave to sin does not mean you can't choose righteousness. Being a slave to righteousness does not mean you can't choose sin. It's all Calvinists would say they're dead to sin. And they're, they're a slave of righteousness, but yet they still sin every day without word deed according to their own confession. So it just, it may, I, don't, I wonder if they take this into account here when they're reading this through, because Jesus actually does call the sinners sick. And they need a physician. And the question I have for them is, can the physician heal them? 
these sick people. If not, you're not a very good physician. If you have to stay sick, and you have no option but to stay a sick sinner, then what kind of physician do you have? Not a very good physician. But Jesus is a great physician. He can heal to the uttermost. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's a quote from Hosea 6.6. 6. And I want to, what I think this he's trying to tell them here is that they're focused on this, this, the law here and, and what, you know, sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. He's trying to say, listen, I want mercy from you, from people. And I want to go to some other scriptures here. And he also says the same thing in Matthew 12.7, but Matthew 23.23. 23. And this is where he's just pronouncing woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the people. And in Matthew 23, 23, he says this. I think it goes very well along with what he's saying here in, in Matthew 9, 13. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So there's weightier matters here that they're neglecting. But they're doing these other things that they, that they think that, that are really easier to do. Because they, they really show, are showing no care for people here by doing those things. But justice and mercy and faith, the weightier matters of the law. Because what's the whole purpose of the law in the first place? What's the fulfillment of the law? Love. That's the purpose of the law. Love. That's what he's trying to get across to them. Love. You don't love the tax letters. You don't love the sinners. You won't even eat with them. I'm sitting here telling them the truth. And you won't even eat with them. You cast them out. And we see in Mark 12, 33, when Jesus is talking about the greatest commandments. The greatest commandment, Mark 12, 33. He just quoted the greatest commandments in Mark 12, 29 to 31. In Mark 12, 33, he says, And to love him with all the heart, well, this is actually the scribe responding, And to love him with all, the, with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, to love one neighbor as oneself is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So maybe, I, I don't know, I, I can't remember if this is, I think this is actually after what's going on here in Matthew. Maybe that scribe was there and he got it. Maybe he actually got it. Because he's saying here that to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's getting it. Mercy, love, compassion, above sacrifices. You know, even in the Old Testament, if we go there real quick, 1 Samuel 15 verse 22. This is right after um, Saul had been rejected as king because he disobeyed God. God told him to kill all the people he was wiping out, the Amalekites, and he didn't do that. He told him not to take any of the plunder. He didn't obey that. So God rejected Saul as a king. And uh, Samuel said this in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, 
and to heed than the fat of rams. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Even in the Old Testament. Love is greater than sacrifices. As the scribe admitted in the New Testament. In Proverbs 21.3, we see something similar being said here. It says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And of course we know this is what Jesus is quoting from here in, in Matthew 9, 13, Hosea 6. Here's probably one of my favorite scripts here, Micah 6, 6 through 8. And Micah is right after... Uh, after after Daniel, after after Jonah, or after Jonah, Micah six, and verses six through eight. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the, the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? So I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And what does God require of you? He has shown you what is good, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So I think what we see here, standing out to me more than anything, in these, these 13 verses that we read is, we see humility, we see mercy, we see love, we see forgiveness. And what does Jesus say in the, in the Beatitudes when he says, Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. You know, and, and, and this Matthew 9, 13 here, this verse where he says, Go learn what this means. You know, I don't think he's just talking to the Pharisees here. Because his own disciples probably had the same view of tax collectors that they did. Most of Jewish people had that view of tax collectors. So for them to accept him into their group now, it's probably something for them to learn too. And they need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You know, even later on, the Sons of Thunder, John and James, they had to learn anything. They wanted to call down fire on these people. And you just had to rebuke them. The disciples and children. Yes. The disciples keeping the children away from the Messiah. Well, they kept them away because they were sinners. And Jesus doesn't want to touch sinners, right? We know children are sinners. What was that uh, reference in my thing? I'm sorry. Uh, six, verses six through eight. And even in Hosea, there is a calling to repentance here. And let me just read from verse 4 in Hosea 6. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. and the early dew, it goes away. What happens to a morning cloud? What does it do eventually? It goes away. What happens to the dew on the grass? What happens eventually? It goes away. And he's saying to them, your faithfulness is like that. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's very, very passive. 
Therefore I have honed them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and your judgments are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and a knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And the Hebrew word for mercy here, which is what Jesus is quoting from, could, uh, could mean faithfulness and loyalty too. So Jesus, what he wants is faithfulness, loyalty, to, to be merciful, to be loving, to be compassionate to people. And we see that here, that Jesus is willing to reach out to these people who are considered the worst of the worst. That's all I had to bring today. Does anyone have anything they want to add from the passage or questions, objections? Daddy? Yes. What was, um, what was, um, the chapter um, when you were, um, when you were, um, saying, um, saying, um, what was different about Mark and Luke and all? What chapter was um, Luke? Uh, we read Luke 5. Luke 5 and what was Mark 2? Mark was 2. Mm -hmm. You want to read them later on? Yeah, I totally will. Okay. The next thing is Luke 3. That's good. Mm -hmm. Good idea. They were too early to start studying, so. That's right. to they, you know, they, they brought him, they saw him, they, and then in each account it says that um, when Jesus saw their faith, then he, he healed. So it wasn't just the faith of the paralytic, actually, it seems to be, when the verses before that in context, you know, I, I might read, it seems to be he's referring to the ones who brought the man, their faith. What do you we, I mean, I, I'm wondering if from that, does Jesus sometimes uh, heal people based on the faith of another? Well, I, I, I don't think we can say that from this passage because obviously the paralytic himself had faith. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when it says their faith, I think he's talking about all of them together as a group. Right. Uh, now, in this situation, if it wasn't for his friend's faith, he would not have gotten to Jesus. So his friends, the friend's faith would have brought him to Jesus. Uh, but he had to have faith himself to be forgiven of his sins. And, um, you know, there's, there's certain situations where Jesus doesn't require the faith of someone who's getting healed. For example, it doesn't say anything about the, uh, Peter's mother-in-law having faith to be healed. Some people are just dead. How can they have faith when they're dead? Did Lazarus have faith to be risen from the grave? Jesus said, come out. He said, okay. And he came out. That was it. And the Syrophoenician woman and the daughter, right? Um, she's the one that's coming, you know, and, right. and begging. He says it's not good to give the right. the, the children's bread to the little dogs, right. you know. And even the, you know, that's beautiful. Even even he's drawing the faith out of her, and then right. she, you know, her daughter's demon possessed, right? Sure, she's healed. 
Right. Seems to be on the faith on the basis of her faith coming to the Lord that He healed her. Right. Right. And Jairus. Right. And it's just the centurion we just read about his servant. Yeah. So so throughout the gospel we don't it isn't always required for someone to be healed that they have faith. It isn't always required. Uh, so I mean, you can pray for someone to be healed, and God can heal them without even them even knowing about it, without them even thinking about Jesus at all. That's just that 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 kind of opens something up to me. Even thinking about prayer, how right. it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous right. man avails much. Right. And so there could be someone else that doesn't even have faith that right. the Lord could touch them or do something and uh, reveal Himself to them based on your coming to Him. Right. So that's kind of what happened here. But yeah, you're right. I think for him, his sins to be forgiven, he has to be, he has to be part of the when he saw their faith. Right. His right. faith was involved in that too. But right. it did require the faith of his friends also. Yeah, but I, like you said, I think the point you're making here, which is a good one, that not always when we see people healed is their faith required in their part. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, not always when people have faith to be healed are they having faith for salvation as well. Right. Um, I, I would say there's, I can't remember where it is, but there's there's these lepers who were healed by Jesus, and he said, go do this. Mm-hmm. And most of them didn't obey. That's right. You know, or only one of them came back, I think, and said, you know. So there isn't always, I mean, I, I don't know if this has really happened or not, but there's a guy named John Duncan who was preaching on Georgia campus, UGA campus recently, and he, he's been getting more and more into this, you know, Mark 16, literally, where as you go forth to preach, you should signs and wonders should follow you. So he, he's getting more into that, I guess. And I have no problem with people getting healed in the open air. I'm open to that at all times. I don't, I don't necessarily seek after it. But um, he was he was, he was was praying for this one guy in the middle of the open air. And according to his account of the story, the guy's back got healed. And the guy, was not, he was a mocker. He was mocking the preaching, and the guy got healed while he was mocking you see it, you watch the video, it, it almost looks like the guy's astonished. Right. When he, when he commands the, not command, but he, he prays the prayer and speaks this, and the guy's like, and you see the expression on his face. Like, his laugh is like a nervous laugh. Yeah, it's like a nervous laughter, and you know, what just happened, he kind of right. expression on his face. And I just wish John would have, you know, followed up with him individually and gotten that, you know, right. Has, yeah. has something happened with you? Yeah. You've gotten that part of the video, not just the preaching part, but yeah, he did follow up a little bit. He said it doesn't happen on video, mm. from what I understand. Yeah, so, but you know, if that's true, that really did happen, then it's a mocker God's healing. Now that'll wake people up to to the truth yeah. and open up their hearts, maybe to Jesus more. Like I said, we see it happening in the scripture. Right. So um, he's the same yesterday, today, forever. Right. right. And it, it's it's according to his will who he heals and who he doesn't. You know, we can pray, you know, until we're blue in the face for someone to be healed and he doesn't want to heal him. We can pray for someone once or not pray for all and God will heal him. Yeah. At all. But so he I mean, wants us to pray. Yeah. You know. So it does it does we don't really know what'll happen. We just need to know that we're doing our part in walking in God's will when it comes to these issues. But we know if we don't have faith in the Lord, then he he chooses to he chooses to as we come to him, uh, the effectual fervent prayer of right. a righteous man avails much. Right. So if we just say, well, I'm not going to pray, and right. I'm not going to pray about this, right. then we won't you know, have any pardon. I mean, no he, he could still heal if he wanted to, but we're not going to have any pardon. That's right. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
and what are you doing? And uh, or if or if that person has no one, I, I look at my life in the past when I was lost and I was in rebellion against the Lord. My mom was praying, but I wonder what I wonder what the difference would be if right. I had no one praying. For me. Right, I might be in hell right now. Yep. you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God obviously does work through prayers. There was times that the Lord showed Himself to me before I knew Him, right. and kept me from perishing. Right. He just had mercy on me because of the faith of my mom, who was praying for me. Uh, so I think that applies like to all, all family members that aren't saved, and, and keep keep praying for them. Yeah, we pray for God to uh, to save somebody. Obviously, we're not praying for God to force Himself upon someone and to make them be saved, like Calvinists would say. Uh, we're we're praying for God to influence them strongly, to do things that maybe He would have done otherwise if we had not asked. Yes. You're not happy to have asked. Yeah. Seek and, and the worship, knock and the worship be open. You seek and you shall find. So persistence, perseverance, and prayer—we talked about before—it's very important. You know, I, I just give me test my my mom. I prayed for her for many years before she got saved. Mm-hmm. My stepfather, I prayed for him for even longer yes. before he got saved. Mm-hmm. And that just gives me encouragement with what happened to him to continue praying for my sister. And we got to experience it. We were crying out, right. praying for him right here. Right. Your right. heart was really, your heart was heavy in a good way for him. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so that's a good example right there too. Right. And they and, and and when he comes to this brokenness and going to extremes for people for these things, you see that in the story. They're going to the extreme. They're, they're going on top of the roof, taking the tiles off and laying them down. Because yeah. they can't get them to any other way. They're not standing up and walking around. They're carrying them on a stretcher. Mm-hmm. You know, you see the centurion sending people, the Jewish people to go see him. And they send the servant to go see him. And you have the mother, you know, even allowing herself to be called a dog. Just so her daughter can be healed. Yeah. You know, she's willing to go through all that. The woman who we'll read about uh, later on, who was bleeding for 12 years, mm-hmm. pressed through this large crowd, just so could, she simply can touch him and be healed. Mm-hmm. So people went to extreme measures to, to let this guy. And sometimes I think that's what God's looking for. He's looking to see, you know, how, how much are you willing to do? Yeah, what, what will our faith, how far will our faith step out? You right. know what I mean? According it's, to your faith, so it'll be unto you. Yeah. Jesus said. And obviously, sometimes there's a, there's a song that you got to actually hear. I, I shared it with Brother John, um, Stephen Curtis Chapman. I, I like Stephen Curtis Chapman, his music. But, yeah. Um, That's he, he, uh, he, he really enjoyed this one song because um, he supports open air preachers in the song. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think John posted on his Facebook page on that. that was something, something crazy? Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> that was That's good. the faith that willing to do something crazy like those guys climbing on the roof. Right. There's like, Amen. That's what real faith will do sometimes. Amen. Do something crazy. To other people's eyes, it looks crazy. But, well, well, God said but he, it didn't look crazy to Jesus. Right. He right. didn't rebuke him or no. anything. What? You guys are nuts. What are you doing here? <laughs> You're breaking his roof. Right. And Peter, you, you don't, you, I mean, this is from silence, but you don't hear Peter complaining about it, or Matt, or yeah, Peter complaining about it yeah. at that point either. Yeah, he's kind of happy he got healed too. You know, so, you know, even the Bible says that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. In preaching the gospel is foolishness of those who are perishing. Can you imagine if someone busted through your roof again? I see someone coming through these tiles. Well, hey, you know, if the Lord can heal the person's body that's broken, he can heal the broken roof. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> probably, they probably knew. Oh, Lord. Just nothing. Yeah, he was a carpenter. I wonder if he got up on there and... Hey, why not? What was the reference in Hosea, brother? 6-6. Six, six. Oh, there's Micah. 6-6 six, six and Hosea, too. Yeah. I think that's a good lesson for us, too. That's actually what he's quoting. Not to worry about the mommy things, you know. Oh, yeah. Like the things of the world, the cares of the world, the so temporary much. Temporary things. Right. When there's something internal, even greater happening. Right. Mm -hmm. Not get consumed with the temporary mm -hmm. stuff. Right. They can all fall into that. Thing about mercy more than sacrifice. And I think about uh, the zealousness of, of a lot of open air preaching nowadays. It's like they have no mercy, man. Yeah. They have no compassion. And uh, I was on that. I was on that kind of on that road on that horse myself for a while, you know. And uh, not that we shouldn't refuse, that we shouldn't approve, but, but man, some mercy. Ambassadors uh, for Christ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Almost seeming like uh, you know these cruel messengers that seemingly want to drive people to hell. Yeah. It's like they just want to, to be a taskmaster to, to to continue drive drive them down the wide road. Yeah, yeah they'll take open preacher who will say them about himself that they're cruel messengers. They'll take that one obscure verse from Proverbs and make it their verse for ministry verse. But when Jesus says, I desire mercy above sacrifice, but learn what this means, he says it twice in the Gospel according to Matthew. It's like this is from Messiah. And uh, it's very dangerous, and it's very easy to do, because you're an open-air preacher, you're dealing with the hard-hearted sinners, day in and day out. They can harden your heart very easily against them. Yep. And um, it, can, it can bring you to the point where you don't even listen to what they're saying, because you already have the answer ready. And then you're really not dealing with the person, you're dealing with the question. Like there's just some, yeah, some objection. Like there's just some objection to be dealt with, that they're an actual person. Not they're like they're an actual person. Yeah, they're that's an actual beautiful. person. Yeah, that's beautiful, because Carla Tucker, and you got, we got a, maybe you can work, because you watched it, right? You watched it. you got to check that out. She actually says that, right? She was so thankful for the ministers of God that came and ministered to her in mm -hmm. the prison right. and treated her like a person. Not just like an inmate, you know, some knots on the belt. Right. Oh, and the inmate got saved. That touched her. Right. That was that was a big part, and she shares in her testimony part of her salvation. Right. That was, that was a huge part of her salvation. So that's true, and I, I I can see how I think it seems like almost almost everyone that steps up to to preach, and the Lord calls them to preach, they have they go through this period of maybe they're tempted to get just into the no mercy. Because you, I think when the Lord says that in Matthew 24, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will go cold. Right. And you're just seeing lawlessness abounding, and and, and we got to be careful that our love doesn't. Yeah, that doesn't just mean that we're going off into sin, but right. our love can grow cold for them. Cold for them. Right. Yeah. And that's because their lawlessness it's abounding, and we're and, and we got to be careful that our love is abounding. Our love should abound with it. Abounding yeah. too. Right. And uh, I remember sharing with a brother one time. Uh, the verse where it says mercy triumphs over judgment, and um, and I think the Lord that's that's something that's keep on. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Yeah, how do you how do you explain Jesus uh, talking about Jerusalem 
you know, wanting, wanting him, you know, him as a hen to gather chicks under his wing. Such a compassionate, merciful uh, uh, concepts that he's communicating there and in light of that view, you know. Jerusalem had rejected him over and over again. He was about to crucify him. Well, he tried to kill him several times, too, by then. Yeah, so, I mean, he, he had everything that someone in our day can possibly give you, and he still loved them. He want them to be saved. So, we'll definitely be careful about to uh, check ourselves about. But I, I think as long as we're staying in. Uh, prayer and our prayer closet that these things will happen. And God will allow these things to happen. And, uh, so we need to make sure that we're doing that. And if we're doing that, I think that can keep us from those kind of things. <coughs> I think sometimes open-air preachers can, or some of the ones I've observed anyway, especially when we go to these outreaches, like so far these really big outreaches, it's just go, 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 go the whole time. But time needs to be spent to prayer too. Otherwise, you're not prepared to go, go, go. And so, I don't know how many are doing it and how many aren't. But I think it will show in the open air at times. You know how much time you really are spending in prayer and doing as I can't remember who said this, but basking yourself in hell and basking yourself in heaven, so that you can go out and preach both to those who are going to hell. needs to be a balance there and um, you know, I wish I could be on the streets 24-7 sometimes but I have a wife and a family and have other things that need to be prayer is so important when it comes to these things being an effective minister it's, it's, there's, it's good to have zeal but zeal can be bad too if you have zeal for his father's house ate a month who don't like the way Jesus responded there? Turn the temple tables over. Okay, okay. Is there anything else? I was just going to say, my husband has encouraged me before because I can lean towards being. I mean, there's things that I can be angry about that are righteous, you know, that like righteous anger towards things. Like, I remember when the children would come over to our house and bring certain things with them and. You know, there would be, like, things that I would be angry about in their life, you know. But then, you know, then Kevin also shared with me that, you know, don't don't get too far with, don't go too far with that. Right. You know, because righteous anger can turn into unrighteous anger if you don't guard yourself on that. Because we, we can be grieved over things and angry and think that we are justified because the Lord's angry with us, too. He's angry at the wicked every day, and, you know, we could think of those things, but then I'm thankful that my husband kind of cautioned me on that not to go too far, because it was going too far where I think I was taking the righteous anger as a, as a right to be angry about certain things, but maybe the Lord didn't want me to be carrying that burden, you know. So to speak, but to listen slow to become angry. Is mm -hmm. anger man is something that our slave that God desires? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could have the righteousness of God uh, 
and then it can turn to righteousness of man. Okay. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God or, or unrighteousness. 